Well, I'd encourage you to turn me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. As we begin by, we're actually going to consider a couple passages this evening. Uh, as we begin, uh, begin, we're continuing to look at what the Bible says about the doctrine of the church. If you recall last week, we asked the question, what is the church? And very simply, uh, we can describe the church with a kind of preliminary sketch definition as something like this, that the church is the visible manifestation of Christ's kingdom on earth. The New Testament has a lot to say about the kingdom of God. If you recall last week, Jesus himself, the content, the sum and substance of Christ's uh, gospel message was that the kingdom of God is at hand. And we find that Paul himself proclaims the same thing, that the kingdom of God has come, has been inaugurated through the resurrection and ascension of Christ on high. So Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 15 to 23 uh, and then uh, begin focusing on the last uh, few verses in this chapter. Paul says this, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and of your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Notice the, the Trinitarian component there, that the God of Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that same great might that he worked in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above Talk about a spatial distinction here. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, and now here's the temporal distinction, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And now we see another categorical distinction, verses 22 and 23. And he has put all things under his feet and has given him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you look at the Psalms, uh, Psalms is one of my uh, favorite uh, books of the Bible. I don't know, it, it changes every week. Uh, but I think the Psalms are really uh, underappreciated in a lot of ways. But one of the, the re- repeated themes that you see in the Psalter is the proclamation that the Lord reigns. Not simply that the Lord will reign, not simply that the Lord reigns over Israel, but the Lord reigns over the whole host of creation. You think of Psalm chapter 93, verse 1, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. Psalm 96, a command to the nation of Israel to proclaim to the nations that the Lord reigns. Psalm 97, 1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Psalm 99, 1, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Psalm 146, 10, the Lord will reign forever and ever. I think something we might actually take for granted, but it it raises a really important question that I think we have to ask uh, as it relates uh, not only to the doctrine of the church, but to the doctrine of Christ's kingship. If the Lord already reigns, how is it that we say that Christ has come to reign by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension on high? Doesn't that seem almost repetitive? 
well, the Lord reigns. But now Paul, here at the end of Ephesians 1, is saying and praising the God of all grace who has seated Christ as king over all and has put him in a position of authority and power over all things. We don't see that simply in this passage. You see it replete throughout the New Testament. There is an actual accession to the throne through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, where Paul speaks of the gospel of God promised in the Old Testament concerning God's Son, who, and I quote, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, which is kingly language, to be declared to be the Son of God, Psalm 2. But he's declared to be that by his resurrection from the dead. You think Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Christ, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much more superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. In other words, Christ's ascension on high, he takes a seat of authority. In fact, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament is Psalm 110. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So if, stick with me, if Christ is God, and God has always reigned and always ruled over the earth, in what sense are we saying Christ has now come to reign? Is this just uh, kind of, uh, is Paul just giving flowery language that we can't really reconcile, that doesn't have any uh, uh, real meaning or distinction, or does the scripture teach something else? In other words, to put it more pointedly, what does the New Testament say, I'm sorry, what does the New Testament mean when it says that Christ has come to reign by his ascension on high? when the Old Testament declares that God has always reigned. Are we saying that only God the Father reigned during the Old Testament? Now Christ uh, has uh, now also become king? That doesn't work because Paul says elsewhere, Colossians 1.15, that the Son was the source by which all things were created. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 is the Son who upholds the universe by the word of His power. In one sense, the New Testament also affirms the eternal kingship of Christ. It's one of the things we even see in the Gospels, that uh, 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 Jesus over and over and over again manifests his kingship even prior to his resurrection from the dead. So what's going on here? Well, if you look here in verses uh, 22 and 23, I want you to notice a certain distinction that's being made here. It's a careful distinction, one that we might have our eyes gloss over if we're not paying attention. Um, but look, notice this, verse 22. And he, that is God, put all things under Christ's feet. All things. The whole cosmos. Right? You see that language prior in verses 19 and following. Christ was seated on high above every ruler, power, and authority, not only in this age, but the age to come. So Christ rules over all things. And God gave Christ to be head over all things to the church. In other words, what Paul is making is a twofold distinction between the mode or the manner in which Christ reigns. Um, Reformed theologians would refer to this as the twofold kingdom of Christ. The Christ, being God, has ruled all things providentially, essentially 
because he is God. But now Christ, as the God-man, has been placed as head over the church. So the distinction we see here, and if, uh, um, uh, if you didn't notice earlier, I have handouts that I try to, uh, have been, I'm hoping to place in the back just about every week. So the distinction we have here, I, um, towards the bottom of the page, between Christ's essential reign as creator and his mediatorial reign as redeemer. In other words, Christ has come to his fullness as the God-man and has been placed as head over the church. So the question we have to ask, and this is a kind of a, lengthy, a somewhat lengthy setup, what's the difference between the way in which Christ governs the world and the way in which Christ governs his church? We're actually going to only focus on that second distinction this evening because we're focus of this series is on the church. Simply put, we could say in terms of governing all things, Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. There is, there's not one facet of the world around us that falls outside the purview of Christ's reign as, uh, as creator. But we see Christ ruling his church in a very special way now that he has ascended on high as the resurrected God-man. So what we see is that the New Testament, actually not just the New Testament, but, <coughs> excuse me, I swallowed a feather. <coughs> Long story. Um, my dog ate a comforter in anyways. It's a loose feather, sorry. Um, there are several uh, uh, biblical metaphors that the Scripture gives for the church that highlights this particular, this special way in which Christ governs His redeemed people. Remember, the church is the redeemed body of Christ. It is the visible manifestation of Christ's kingdom of grace on earth. And what we find is that there are uh, six uh, common metaphors. These are the most six, the six most prevalent metaphors that you'll find in Scripture concerning Christ's relationship to His church. These metaphors are apt I think it's important that we recognize that all of them give a different facet, provide a different angle uh, through which Christ, uh, uh, that, that, that speaks to the way in which Christ governs his church. Let me give maybe something of an example of what happens if we dismiss one, uh, to, to focus on one to the exclusion of all the others. Um, I, I, I served a number of years ago in a, uh, uh, oh, thank you so much, in, uh, is this just water? All right, I don't know if it's that or the hard stuff. So, hard water, right? Uh, thanks, James. Um, uh, I served a, 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 helped a, at a church a number of years ago as uh, coming from a, a largely a, a Dutch reform congregation. I won't say which denomination or anything like that. Uh, but here was a, a, and one of the things you got to remember about kind of the, the Dutch Reformed churches is that uh, during the big uh, split in the Dutch Reformed state churches in the 19th century, there's a mass migration uh, to the United States where it's not just individuals or individual families that migrated uh, uh, to the Midwest, um, but rather uh, whole churches would uproot, uh, hop on a ship, and then come out to the Midwest. So think what happens uh, when you fast forward uh, 200, uh, uh, two centuries later. You have these communities of people who have uh, uh, known each other for generations to where coming to church uh, is much like a family reunion. In this particular church that I served in, 
really highlighted the nature of the church as a family institute, as a family, as a massive family. Because quite literally, they saw them. Everybody, everybody was related to one another. If any of you have ever lived in kind of a, of a, a Dutch enclave, it's it's you know, sometimes it might be referred to as the Dutch bubble. I mean, there, there's really the the, the sense of uh, of camaraderie and familiarity. It's really good. But what happens uh, when uh, a member of the church has to come up? Uh, on disciplinary charges. Uh, you got, we got to remember that there's not just a, f- a family metaphor for the church, but there's also a legal metaphor that we will find. Uh, and if you exclude one, uh, one uh, metaphor uh, and you hold it, hold it in exclusion to the others, you might end up not being able to do your job. You might be really good at the community, but you might not actually know how to deal with the legal facets of the church because the church, as we saw last week, is seen as, a, as, as an institution, as, uh, as part of the kingdom of Christ. And so what I want us to think about is that these metaphors, on the one hand, we can't pick one to the exclusion of the others. We might have our personal favorites, but it doesn't mean we could toss the others to the side. Um, The second thing is they must be held in tandem together. Each one of these metaphors gives a very important uh, facet to the nature of uh, Christ's uh, bride, Christ's church. And so one of the the most, I I think, important features that we see, one of the most uh, apt metaphors uh, in the New Testament, to speak of Christ's relationship to his church. And by the way, one of the things we'll also need to notice is that uh, there is no talk of the church apart from Christ. You know, Calvin says this in Book 3 of his Institutes, all that we have, all the benefits we have in Christ are useless to us so long as we remain outside of Christ. And so this speaks of the special redeeming union, that mystical union that we have with our Savior. It's not just speaking of the, the, the way in which Christ is king over all things, but it speaks of that special way. The first metaphor that we see, or one of the first metaphors that we see um, in Scripture, in Christ's relationship to his church, is the metaphor of a head uh, to the body. Now, I think some of you all might think, you know, head, you know, head shoulders, knees, and toes when you hear uh, that language of head and body, but this is more of, a, of an organizational metaphor, uh, when it, it's more of a political and organizing feature. If you'll turn me to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Colossians 1.18 uh, says this, that Christ is the head of the body, the church. Uh, Ephesians 5.25 makes a similar uh, statement. You don't have to turn, I'm, I have these uh, zip codes written here on this uh, um, handout for you, so I'm going to be going through these somewhat quickly, but you see uh, in Ephesians 5.25, no, I'm sorry, 5.23, uh, speaking of the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. It's clearly, it's not a body metaphor in these particular instances. It's a question of headship. Uh, When we speak of our president, we speak of him being the head of the government, uh, if you are, um, you know, um, partake uh, in any type of uh, um, clubs in high school, you would have an elected official. You have the treasurer, the secretary, and you have your president, right? That is the head of the body, that particular organizing institution. And that is what we see here. The metaphor head and body, it's not an anatomical image that's being brought into mind, although you see that elsewhere. You'll see that in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are all members of the body. That is a separate metaphor. But what we see here in Colossians 1, Ephesians chapter 5 is uh, the, the idea not so much of anatomy as that of preeminence. Again, 
Colossians 1.18, Christ is the head of the church. He is uh, the firstborn of all creation so that he might have the preeminence. Ephesians 5, again, like I mentioned earlier, gives that dual analogy. Christ is head over his body, the church, just as uh, the, head, the husband is the head, the presiding member of the family, so to speak, over his wife and family. And in, in other words, when we see this language of head, it speaks of, of headship, preeminence, and authority. Christ is the founding and presiding head over the church. Um, in one sense, we want to say that the church began not in Acts 2, uh, but it began in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. That's where the redeemed body is, where Christ sets apart the redeemed from the nations visibly, and he presides over them by giving them special laws, the, the sacrificial laws that we see in the old covenant. What we see in Acts chapter 2 is not so much the birth of the church as much as it is its bar mitzvah, so to speak, where the church comes into full fruition with the outpouring of the Spirit. But Christ is the founding and presiding head over his church. So when Christ enters into his state of exaltation, the, the people of God enter into a new mode of existence, so to speak, right? What's the very first thing Christ does when he ascends on high? He tells the disciples this in, in Luke 24. He says this in Acts chapter 1, wait for the promise of what? The Spirit. When Christ ascended on high, Ephesians chapter 4, He gave gifts to men. He poured out His Spirit on His church. So when Christ ascends on high, when He is seated, he, uh, he's, Christ, has all, though He's been king over all things as the head of, over all creation, in a special way by His ascension on high, in His heavenly session, being seated at the right hand of the Father, he enters into a new state where he is now the presiding king of uh, his kingdom of grace in his estate of exaltation. You see, the church is not simply a body of believers. You know, there, there's something that distinguishes the church as church, like as we're gathered on a Sunday morning and let's say a group of believers getting together to have a Bible study. In one sense, you know, we are united to one another, but more importantly, um, what this imagery speaks of is the individual's relationship to the head, not just our relationship to one another. It speaks of our relationship to Christ as King. That's why Christ as head over the church presides over the church, and so he gives laws to his church. That should be seen as a great benefit of the church. You see here I have um, uh, kind of a fill-in-the-blank thing for you guys, just so if you fall asleep, you can wake up and go, okay, I need to write this down. Because there, well, there will not, not be a test, but uh, at the very least, it gives you something to look at at night, right? Um, but one of the benefits that, that, um, that this metaphor highlights and accents, that Christ being the presiding and founding head of the church, he gives... He rules his people. He gives laws to his people. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes um, uh, being uh, the Americans that we are, we cringe under the idea of rules and laws, that we think of them as a bad thing. They can be if they're unjust. They cannot be fun if they're onerous. Uh, but the law is a good thing. Especially since, as we know, Exodus 20 the law reveals the moral character of God. That's why the, the psalmist will say, how I delight in your law. 
What other people on the face of the earth would sit around, leading a, uh, sit around reading a legal code book thinking, oh, this is something I love doing? Who sits around reading their driver manual handbook saying, oh, how I delight to read the latest statutes on running red lights? I know a couple people who are like that. They typically end up being clerks uh, in a session, but uh, it's, I'm not speaking of you, James. I'm speaking of other, other clerks I know. But, but we see here that God's law that he's given us is something that's special. It reveals his very character, something that we are called to walk, and we should see this as a good thing. You think of how Exodus 20 even begins. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of land, the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, right? Uh, so it, the whole, the, 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 the beginning of the Ten Commandments prefaces with the great uh, announcement of salvation. I am the Lord who has delivered you. And so here are my laws. And so what we see here, this language of head and body, at least in Colossians 1 and Ephesians 5, speaks not so much of anatomical language as it is a language of a government. And yet that head-body language also gives kind of this, this slight hint that there is an organic connection that exists between Christ and his church. This is one of the differences that we have. This is why we have to look at all the other metaphors. You know, if, if we were just simply to have uh, this particular metaphor, we might miss some other important things that we see emerge in Scripture. You know, uh, right now, we have, you know, it's the same thing we see every four years, the transition of power the, uh, with an elected official. Uh, right now, uh, 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 you know, we have one president, President Trump, in just a few short weeks. Um, I can't actually remember when the transition takes place. I know it's always in January or February, but January 20, great. Uh, you could tell I was not the best of American government. Um, and uh, so January 20, in just 10 days, right? Do I have my math right? I got one math answer right today, right? Um, in just 10 short days, uh, we will have a new elected head. That doesn't change with the church. There is only one head of the church. Christ is, and of course, if we didn't elect Christ, Christ has been appointed before the foundations of the earth to be our king, and he, he reigns not only in this age, but the age to come. Um, so, there, you know, there, there's a disconnect. You know, uh, the current president that we have, the next president we have, is good only for a set expiration date, a set period of time. But then that relationship dissolves. What we have with Christ is a more firm union. In fact, an indissoluble union, as we see, as we consider these other uh, metaphors, and, and I'm, trust me, I'm, I'm not going to uh, spend as much time as I did on this first one with all the others. This is more to give you something to, to study throughout the week, if you want to think of it like this. You also see another metaphor, that of a shepherd and a sheep. You see that in John 10 in particular, Jesus says on uh, two or three times in this passage, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. What is it that the shepherd does? Three things. He feeds, he leads, he protects. In fact, he protects from outsiders. See, Jesus governed Christ as the good shepherd governs his church in a very special way that he doesn't govern the rest of the world. Of course, it's true, he, he rules over all things. But with respect to the apple of his eye, he takes special notice and care of them. We have... Uh, another uh, metaphor, that of vine and branches. This really spells, uh, uh, shows the organic relationship 
between Christ and his people, just as, and, and again, one of my, actually one of my favorite passages, John 15, Jesus says what? I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. But apart from me, what? You can do nothing. In fact, if you are apart from Christ, you are, you are a barren, you're a barren branch. The only thing that's good for you is for you to be tossed up and cast into the fire. Jesus uses that language, actually in, um, uh, echoing the language of Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus is not just making up new language on the spot. He's actually digging deep into uh, the Old Testament itself to show that if you are to bear fruit, you must be connected to me. You must be connected organically to me. There must be, in other words, a vital faith, a vital uh, union with Christ uh, by faith that, so there's an organic union that's spelled out in that metaphor of vine and branches where that really shows the benefits Christ gives in that he nourishes us, just as a vine causes the branches to bear fruit. The husband and a bride is yet another uh, image that Christ uses of his relationship to the church, just as a husband loves his wife and gives himself up for her, so Christ loved the bride. It speaks of the love of Christ. It's the great benefit we have. First Peter chapter 2 speaks of the importance of Christ's rule as the foundation to a house, as the foundation to a temple. Christ is the temple, and we are the priesthood. Christ is the high priest, and we are a royal priesthood. There's, there's a lot of uh, uh, kind of mixed imagery here, but it all focuses on this, the nature of worship. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 will actually speak of Christ as the great liturgist, the one who leads the people in the assembly to worship God. Christ is both the object of our affection as God, but as mediator, he is the one who leads us to worship as well. Not just the language of temple and priesthood, which speaks of the benefits of worship, the special relationship that God has with his redeemed people, but also that of a cornerstone and house or family, you see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, where that language uh, now speaks of the great benefits we have in terms of being fellow citizens, but not just fellow citizens, but adopted brothers and sisters. So I want you to, to if we could take a step back and just look at these metaphors, and again, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really rushing through these, but I just want you to know, notice that these metaphors are not just freely statements that Scripture gives. But they are inspired, they are spirit-inspired metaphors given to describe the benefits we have in our union with Christ as the church. It speaks to the special way in which Christ governs the church. As the head presides over the body, so Christ rules over us. He, so he has given us laws. So there is a shepherd over the sheep. So Christ, as the good shepherd, feeds and leads and protects us. As the vine organically supplies the nutrients to the branches in an invisible and secret way that nobody can see, yet it is the very means by which the branches bear fruit. So Christ secretly and specially in this organic bond is united to believers in such a way that he causes us to bear fruit and the godliness. Just as the cornerstone provides the foundation for the temple and for the priesthood, so Christ being the cornerstone is the foundation for all of our worship. And so just as the cornerstone is the, the, uh, the, the baseline for the house, what we might call the household or the family, so Christ by his blood has made we who were orphans, aliens, strangers, 
He's now made us fellow citizens of another kingdom, but fellow citizens in which the entire nation are siblings. It's an awful lot of benefits just by considering the metaphors of Scripture, simply by considering the special mediatorial reign of Christ. And so I think it's important that we recognize Christ governs all things, essentially because He is God. He always has. But now that Christ has ascended on high, He has lavished us with all these gifts. Again, this is why we will speak of the twofold kingdom of Christ. It's not that Christ governs His church, but He doesn't govern anything else. Is that Christ providentially governs the world, all things, and he so orders the history of the world for the benefit of his church. And that's the point that Paul's getting at here at the end of Ephesians 1. It reminds us that Christ reigns over all things as creator, but he reigns over his church, not just as creator, but also as our redeemer. It reminds us that the church is not a building, but it's a people. Right? We, could, we could lose this building tomorrow, and that's okay because the church would still exist in Corvallis because the church is a body. It's a body of believers, people. Christ has not come to redeem you know, uh, uh, four walls. Christ has come to redeem sinners. And that makes the church something special, something far more special than the Boy Scouts or the Kiwanis Club. Whatever political party or affiliation you might be a member of, this is something that's distinct, this is something that's different, and something that comes with particular benefits. For these things, we should give God thanks uh, for the great gift he has given to the church. Uh, so next week uh, is the third Sunday of the month, um, and uh, my, my intention is for every third and fifth Sunday uh, that we have uh, in the month to begin preaching through the Psalms. Because I think that's an important portion of Scripture that we need to have continually before us. But uh, uh, the, uh, two weeks from tonight, we plan, I plan for us to come back and continue uh, considering what the, the Scriptures have to say about uh, Christ's bride, uh, the church. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the church. We thank you that Christ has uh, ascended on high. And that though he rules all things, and all things have been put under his feet, he rules in a special way over the church as our presiding head, as our great shepherd, as the vine connected to branches, as the husband with his great love for his bride, as the cornerstone to a temple, to a household. We thank you for these many ways, these vivid images that you have given us concerning Christ and his relationship to us. And we ask that we would grow in strength, that you would strengthen us by your spirit to proclaim Christ as our all in all. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let us stand as we uh, simply close by singing the doxology.